I'd like to begin the talk tonight with a story of a time when I was in deep retreat for a period of 10 months. I was sitting, for the most part, in silence at Insight Meditation. This was 20-some years ago. Seems like tomorrow. Um, seems like yesterday, but you know. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. But there I was, and as you know, you're very sensitive, you're very full of gratitude if something delicious comes your way, like food. So one day, a, a package arrived from the outer world, and it was a, a little gift from a local yogi, a, a, some homemade goodies. And that was delightful, but what was even more delightful was the note that he attached to this gift. It said simply, all beings cheer you on. All beings cheer you on. And it did. It cheered me on for another four or five months. <laughs> yes, it was Gavin Harrison who did that. And I've told this story so many times, of course, his, his original inspiration has been spread among many people. So I say to you, all beings cheer you on. As we open in our practice, we are somehow opening ourselves, you could say, to a force field of awakening consciousness. You begin to sense that all beings really are cheering us on in this endeavor to awaken to the truth. You can feel it in this room. It's palpable, this living force field that we have all created together, this beautiful, sacred container. When we do this on retreat, we are creating the conditions which support awakening. We could say we have created an alternative culture from the mainstream conventional culture, a culture in which the goals and priorities are quite different from the mainstream. We have been living against the stream, as it is said in the text, and as we have a visual billboard here. <laughs> a reminder to all of us that we are, in this endeavor, going against the stream. Living by precepts of non-harming, cultivating this quality of continuous mindfulness of the present moment, what the Buddha called one fortunate attachment, the present. Connecting with the truth of our experience beneath or prior to all of our self-images and concepts and beliefs. Cultivating the qualities of heart which help us remember and care for all our relations, not just our immediate loved ones. All of this is what is valued in our retreat culture. 
And because each of you, each of us, have practiced these things, we have experienced what it is like in body, heart, and mind to feel safe. It is a striking experience, isn't it? To be in a place where we actually feel safe and held, where we can relax, where the contractions can release. In this retreat culture, we have also experienced what it is like to have our noblest aspirations valued and supported. This is a culture of awakening. And as you leave here in a few days, you will take whatever pieces of awakening you have learned in your hearts, minds, and bodies. You will take it with you out into the world. And the world needs you. In the Dharma talks, you have heard a lot about where this practice can take you internally. And many of you in your practice have experienced wonderful breakthroughs of insight, large and small. Tonight, I'd like to share some thoughts about the bigger context in which we are all practicing. The Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, have come to us and have infiltrated our culture in ways which were unimaginable when I started practice some 30 years ago. I could not have imagined what is now happening. Now there is a groundswell of awakening happening, not always so visible, but unmistakably present. And my wish for you is that you remember this as you return to the world, that you know yourselves to be part of a stream of awakening and that you continue to connect to the values and priorities of living an awake life. All beings cheer you on. You are returning to a culture and a planet, which I do not need to tell you is undergoing huge challenges. These days I find myself listening to the news, reading the news, and thinking that what's really going on in a deeper sense is a debate about values. How do we make peace in the world? How do we include a greater diversity of peoples in decision-making, power, and privilege sharing? How do we live on a planet undergoing climate change? How does the global economy impact the poorest of the poor? How do we deal with ongoing racism, sexism, classism? These are questions which affect everyone, all the peoples of the planet. And I feel the Dharma is not irrelevant to these questions. In fact, I believe it has something to offer, indeed, to the planet Earth as it goes through a tumultuous time of transition, it appears. So like Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. 
And my dream or vision is that all of us, as we leave this temporary monastery, this sacred container, that we are all like the seeds scattering, being blown out into the four corners by the wind. The seeds of a new culture, a new understanding, a culture in which the values and goals of awakening, of wisdom and compassion are alive and tangible. And believe it or not, there are signs that this is actually happening. I'd like to tell you a few things that have occurred as you have been in deep retreat. One, could we have dreamed even 10 years ago that Oprah Winfrey and Eckhart Tolle would team up and offer teachings of liberation over the internet? This began about three weeks ago, reaching well over a million people in 20 different countries, live every Monday night. When you go home, you can tune in. Isn't this an amazing? Who could have imagined this? Another thing I find very amazing, 10 years ago, could we have imagined an African-American being the front runner in the democratic race for president? He is. And in addition, giving a groundbreaking speech on racism which occurred while you were here in deep retreat. A speech which you can read when you go home, a speech which everyone agrees has upgraded the dialogue on race in America. No small feat. And now in the last few days in the headlines, the United States, Condoleezza Rice, is calling on China to negotiate directly with the Dalai Lama for a more humane policy in Tibet. There is global support for the Dalai Lama, known as he is for his dedication to compassion and kindness. And because of his moral authority, his practice, pressure on the Chinese government is building to stop the genocide in Tibet. So these are some of the things making headlines. Little glimmers of new possibility, which I find quite heartening, and I'm enjoying bringing to you as news. <laughs> and then, of course, there is the continuing interest in the scientific community on the effects of meditation on the brain. That just it keeps going on and on and on. The scientists are happily busy exploring what is consciousness? What is the mind? Well, they say there's no self, but let's look for one. It must be here somewhere. <laughs> I find it amusing that these are many of the same questions that many of us began to ask in the 60s, questions which took us to Asia to find teachers and teachings. Jack read a story about um, the monkeys of Asia in the Ramayana, who, all being reborn in the West as human beings because of their fondness 
for vast quantities of food, lots of fighting, and limitless sex. <laughs> After some time, though, they all began to get bored. And one by one, they started going back to India because they wanted to find Ram and be with him again. <laughs> I know something led me to go to India. Perhaps it was that. <laughs> the other night, John told his story about meeting the 16th Karmapa. And it reminded me of my own meeting with this remarkable man. But in my case, I did not find him in Asia. I didn't even seek him out. He appeared on a beach in La Jolla, California in 1971 when I was there in graduate school. He and the monks invited my friend and I to come to a teaching and refuge ceremony at a local home a few days later. He was the first Buddhist I had ever met. I had no idea what I was going to, really. But it was there in that intimate setting of about 25 people or so that I took refuge for the first time, that I took bodhisattva vows, having not a clue what I was signing up for. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a Dharma name. Mostly what I remember about that day was the tremendous presence of this Karmapa, this man. His warmth and radiance, sitting in a living room in La Jolla on a sofa in front of these beautiful bay windows that looked out at the ocean. It was a stunning experience. How in the world did he happen to be there? How did I? Eugene talked last night about the mystery. As a child, I was raised in the Presbyterian church. I remember sitting with my parents in church, going to Sunday school, hearing stories from the Bible of the apostles who had direct revelations from God. And I got pretty inspired by this idea as a kid that one could have direct contact with God. That sounded really interesting. So I started praying for God to speak to me. Why not? I prayed fervently and persistently for some time. I felt ready, willing, able. But of course, nothing ever happens. So I began to question whether this was perhaps made up like a fairy tale. In the eighth grade, I began to question the Bible and asked the minister, well, who wrote the Bible? Thinking maybe the whole thing was a fabrication. He didn't really answer my questions or alleviate any of my doubts. In the 10th grade, I was sent to a music and arts camp in New Hampshire for the summer. At the camp that summer, they were doing a production of Joan of Lorraine by Maxwell Anderson. And I ended up being cast in the part of St. Joan. I learned about her for the first time. 
and I found out something really amazing, that she could talk to God. She had a direct line, and that interested me a lot. Her way of accessing God was through nature and through hearing the church bells. So I remember wandering around in the woods, still trying to talk to God, trying to experience what she had. I wasn't too successful. And of course, her story does not have the happiest of endings. <laughs> Being tried and burned at the stake for talking to God. So I definitely got the message that perhaps this was a pursuit that had some danger in it <laughs> and that perhaps I'd better give up. So I did. My search for spiritual revelation, I think, went underground after that experience. And it stayed underground for many, many years until that day on the beach in La Jolla when, as in a dream, a radiant being in red robes appeared, walking towards me, smiling as if he were an old friend. This was the 16th Karmapa. And now his successor, the 17th Karmapa, who is now 22 years old, in a month will be coming to visit the United States for the first time. He will be here in May. A short visit, but significant. Tibetan lamas and teachers have managed, despite overwhelming hardship as refugees, to bring to us an uninterrupted stream of brilliant and profound Dharma teachings. I'm very touched by that. So in the last 35 years, we have been infused with teachings and teachers from all the Buddhist traditions. In the early 80s, I started sitting in the Vipassana tradition at Insight Meditation with Jack and Joseph and Sharon. And at that time, in the early 80s, there were hardly any books about the Dharma. It's hard to believe now. I think there were like three or four. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. The only way to really get the teachings was to go on retreat. It was a great motivator. Now, some 28 years later, the market is overflowing with books on the Dharma. When we went to Asia in the 70s and 80s, we were exposed not only to the teachings and the teachers, but to the cultures in which these teachings have lived for thousands of years. Thailand, Burma, India, Sri Lanka, these are the ones I traveled to and spent time in. And in every one, I was so aware of the visible presence of spiritual practice embedded in the daily lives of people. They are all cultures in which spiritual practitioners are respected and supported. To commit one's whole life to spiritual discipline is seen as a valid path, one that is revered and respected and supported. 
Stories about the spiritual masters are commonly known. Local gurus are honored and supported. It is like an archetype, that the archetype of awakening is present and visible in these countries. I think something similar is happening here. How could it not? In Tibetan teachings, they refer over and over to the self-existing, wake, self-existing wakefulness, which is present in the mind stream of all humans since the beginning of time. This means that awakening is in us as a basic human potential only needing to be realized through practice. One of the functions of retreat is to reconnect you with this universal human potential to awaken, this capacity we all have to live in accord with the truth. And it by necessity involves a deep investigation, a deep questioning of all that we have been conditioned to accept as important, as true. It eventually leads to a reorientation of our focus, hopefully so that we bring back into the culture a vision of awakening as a very real human potential. In a totally new and unique way, this is what Oprah and Eckhart are doing live every Monday night for the next six six weeks or so. Who could have imagined that? It's happening in so many ways now in the culture. So many Dharma centers springing up, so many teachers appearing, so many teachings available every night of the week, so many teachings now appearing on the internet connecting people all over the planet. I used to have a screensaver on my laptop which would spit out random quotations. And one day, I was amused to see a quote from Mark Twain that said, clothes make the person. Naked people have little or no influence on society. It's true, isn't it? However, in India, it doesn't exactly hold. Although in our culture, it's highly valued to be well-dressed. In India, it's quite a different story. Some of the most highly revered saints are often people who are wandering around in diapers or loincloths, or even naked, as the Naga Sannyasis are, the holy men who wear no clothes whatsoever. In India, every year, there is a gathering called the Kumbha Mela. We looked it up on Wikipedia last night so we could share some of the facts about it with you. It occurs four times every 12 years. It has been occurring in India for thousands of years. It is a spiritual gathering, the largest on earth. There is a Google picture of it from outer space. A million people in 2001. 
making it the largest gathering anywhere in the world. Mark Twain actually visited the Kumbh Mela in 1895. He said, it is wonderful, the power of a faith like that, that can make multitudes upon multitudes of the old and weak and the young and frail enter without hesitation or complaint upon such an incredible journey. It is an act born of it, the act born of it is beyond imagination. It is a gathering, sometimes attracting. Every 12 years they have a Maha Kumbh Mela. It's hard to even grok this, but they said 70 million people at the last Maha Kumbh Mela. Mela. Uh, And there's a lot of bathing that goes on at these events. (laughs) The major event is a ritual bath at the banks of the rivers. Other activities include religious discussions, devotional singing, mass feeding of holy men and women, and the poor and religious assemblies where doctrines are debated and standardized. When the Kumbh Mela was held in um, 2003, 39 pilgrims were trampled to death and 57 were injured. Keeping in mind that the number of devotees attending the fair was around 70 million. So it's quite a, an event. And you can, it just somehow speaks to me about the value held in India around this enterprise of spiritual seeking and awakening. A little story about a visit that I made about 10 years ago now to a place in India called Tiruvannamalai where Ramana Maharshi had his ashram and his ashram is still in existence there and it's a wonderful pilgrimage site. Um, Lots of uh, People, lots of Indians go there as an annual pilgrimage to pay their respects to the place where Ramana Maharshi practiced and lived. It's a wonderful place. So a group of friends and I were there and we found that there was a group of sadhus wandering, holy men mostly, every morning who would sing bhajans, they would sing devotional songs, and we loved to go and, and sit with them and, and um, just enjoy the bhajans. And they noticed that we were coming every morning, so finally one morning after they had sung for a while, they stopped, and then they gestured to us like, and now you sing. <laughs> and, and we were all like, oh, well, let's see, some Buddhist chants? Mm, I don't think so. Um, what could we sing in return? And the best we could come up with was, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. 
Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll have Bob Jones. There was a, a woman named Anandamaya Ma who was a great Indian saint, an amazing woman. And one day, she, there's a little story about her, that one day she was receiving some visitors who were a group of quite wealthy uh, Indians. And they came in to see her and they, have said, they said to her, we have come to see the great renunciate at which point she burst out laughing hysterically and fell on the floor laughing and laughing and laughing and they didn't know what, why. Finally she said, you, you who have given up all worship of God, all devotion to God, all service to God, all love of God, you are the great renunciates, I salute you. <laughs> Or Ramakrishna, who said, People weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or can't get money, but who sheds even one teardrop because they have not seen God? Or we could say, because they have not yet awakened. This is the time-honored quest the Buddha went on to realize his full human potential. And lucky for us, in the process, discovered a truth so profound and liberating that it is still rippling through human consciousness. So there are four areas of conventional worldly values which I often talk about as coming into question as we practice. I'm not going to talk about all of them tonight. Eugene rather beautifully covered the, the, the um, sort of the essential uh, practice that we all need at some point of not knowing. He went into that very thoroughly last night, so I'm not going to add anything to that. I thought it might be interesting because we've been um, giving so many teachings on emptiness of self to look at how the self-image and some of the values that some of the worldly values are, are, are sort of embedded, they sort of go together, and how they are challenged in our practice. The first of these is the value of being in control. Our self-image depends very much on a sense of being in control, does it not? We struggle mightily to support the illusion that we are in charge. Meditation challenges this from the very moment we first sit down. Ten minutes of sitting and trying to stay with the breath exposes the fact that we are not in charge in the way that we imagine. This is the phase of practice called all self-knowledge begins with bad news. <laughs> There is good news here as well, because over time we discover that not being able to control every microsecond of our attention or our mind is actually okay. Controlling our mind or controlling our thinking is not the point of insight meditation. 
we discover that the need to be in control is actually fear-based and operating from fear is a tremendous burden. Instead, in practice, we learn to trust the natural flow of being, which includes ceaseless change, not as an enemy, but as the way of things. Like the the saying from Swami Satchidananda, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. We learn to meet the waves of change with fearlessness, with clarity, with the wisdom which mindful awareness brings. A little story from Leonard Jacobson. A spiritual seeker arrived at the gates of hell. He was about to enter when he was stopped by an old magician. You have no weapons, said the magician. Here, take this sword. It will protect you from the evil forces that lie within. The man said, I have no need of weapons. The magician said, only a warrior can enter the gates of hell, slowly drawing the sword from its scabbard. And as he did so, a terrible demon appeared before him. Behold the power of the sword, said the magician, and with one swift blow he killed the demon. Now will you take the sword, he asked. The man shook his head. Are you blind, asked the magician. Can you not see that with this sword the demon was slain? Are you blind, replied the man. Can you not see that with this sword the demon was created? And he walked past the magician through the gates of hell as if they existed only as an illusion in the minds of men. We learn in practice how to meet the demons how to enter territory that seems difficult or frightening. Our self-image also depends for its well-being on standards of performance and success. How am I doing? Am I doing well? Am I ahead? Am I failing? Am I falling behind? You know that one. In short, our self-image gets identified with all the worldly dharmas of success, failure, pleasure, pain, pride, shame, praise, blame, trying desperately to hold on to success, praise, pleasure, feeling good about ourselves. To be on a path of awakening is to focus instead on understanding the whole cycle and loosening our sense of identification with all of it praise or blame, pleasure pleasure or pain, pride or shame, success or failure. And as many of you have experienced with the understanding of impermanence and selflessness comes the seeing that there is no final arrival point called making it or success. Or if there is, it is very momentary. We come to see that no one moment is ever the defining moment of our lives, forever defining who we are. This is good news. 
Every moment is a part of an ongoing, unfolding process of change, which is alive with potential. Potential for new choices, for trusting the unfolding of our experience. Lastly, I want to talk about how our self-image depends on having a story that feels happy, content. We depend on the content of a story for our well-being. Nothing like a retreat to show us this. Of course, we all want to be in a story where we are successful, loved, secure, healthy, seen. We don't want to be in a story where we are homeless, ill, despised, alone, betrayed, fearful. If we don't get the story we want, we may feel we have failed or we feel victimized. The Dharma actually asks us to look at this. Is this the definition of who we are? It asks us actually to expand our sense of well-being, not to be identified so much with the story. If we are a member of a minority in this culture, if we are a woman, not a man, if we are brown or black or yellow, not white, if we are homosexual or bisexual, not heterosexual, our self-image tends to get tied to the content of a collective story in which feelings of discrimination, invisibility, helplessness, oppression, fear, and anger tend to be present. These are the insidious sufferings of the disempowered. The novel by Ralph Ellison called The Invisible Man says it all. Not to be visible to others or only to be visible in stereotypical ways is very painful. This painful collective self of the oppressed group gets exposed in meditation practice, just as all our other self-images tend to get exposed. Being with others who share the same collective story provides a sense of safety and visibility, which is sometimes essential for our healing. That is why we have retreats for women, for men, for LGBT, for POC, people of color. In the early days of practice, there was the naive belief that we could all transcend all these silly distinctions. We could all transcend our gender, our race, our sexual preference, and go right to the truth of emptiness, where such dualistic distinctions are irrelevant. That phrase has stayed with me from being told that many years ago. Dualistic distinctions are irrelevant. Well, not entirely. (laughs) Basically, it doesn't work to try to bypass such things. 
Where practice takes us instead is towards a more intimate understanding of ourselves and others, of our own wounds and of others' wounds. Not to transcend them, but to to relate to them with greater compassion and understanding. Dealing with differences of race, class, gender, sexual preference is challenging. It is challenging on the planet these days. It requires that we all stretch our capacity. So in the service of this, I'd like to uh, offer an exercise, if you wouldn't mind finding a comfortable posture for a moment, freshening yourself in whatever way you need to. Please don't fall asleep. Um, So here you are sitting in the hall at Spirit Rock. You can gently close your eyes. And I'd like you to imagine that you are now the opposite gender. If you are a man, you are now a woman. If you are a woman, you are now a man. Just feel into that for a few moments. In your direct experience, what might be different? Just play with that. What might be different? And now in your direct experience, what is the same? Okay, now you can come back to being yourself in the gender that you are. And now, again, close your eyes and imagine this time that your skin is a different color. If you are white, imagine your skin being brown or black or tan or yellow. sitting in meditation as a person of another color. In your direct experience, what might be different? In your direct experience, what is the same? Now, please come back to being in your own skin.
skin color and when you're ready, open your eyes. So this may have been fruitful or it may have not. It's just an exploration. It's a little investigation or we could say a contemplation of difference of trying to open ourselves to other realities, other ways of being in the world that we may not usually consider. We are asked in our practice to stretch. Thich Nhat Hanh, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we enter our You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. We are interconnected. Through our practice, we see that finding some private happiness as a separate self that will keep us safe and protected from suffering is indeed an an illusion. Instead, our practice is moving us in the opposite direction, seeing that in the words of Martin Luther King, all of us are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. He wrote this in a letter from inside the Birmingham jail in 1963. This perception of interconnectedness seems to be happening more and more all over planet Earth. More and more are waking up to the fact of it, that all of us Earthlings are indeed tied in a single garment of destiny and that we all can and must align with a greater vision for ourselves and all beings. You are part, we are all part of this global Sangha. You are part of a stream of awakening. This may sound a little highfalutin or idealistic, but I would like to suggest it can also actually help you in your practice. When you are sitting at any time, any place, remembering all the beings who are aligned with your own deepest intentions can be a potent motivating force in your practice. All beings cheer you on. So I'd like to close with a very beautiful classic poem by Thich Nhat Hanh which many of you know, but cannot be heard enough. The poem called, Please Call Me By My True Names. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I'm arriving to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest. 
to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you so much for your practice. There's about 40 minutes for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.